This is episode six of Teaching in Higher Ed, eight seconds that will transform your teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I am joined once again with Dave Stahoviak. Hey, Bonnie Stahoviak. Today we are talking about eight seconds that will transform your teaching. Although curiously, it'll take us about 25 or 30 minutes to have that discussion. It is curious, but it will help, I think, solidify. One of the things that Dave and I think a lot about when we plan these episodes are trying not to speak too hypothetically or theoretically about teaching, but really have there be in our minds at least one thing that people might be able to put into practice that would help all of us be better educators, teachers. And so this is one of those things that sounds easy on the surface, but it's actually behaviorally hard to do because we as educators have conditioned ourselves to believe it or not, to actually condition ourselves not to ask questions and then conditioned our students not to ask them. So let's talk a little bit about conditioning for those of you who may not be psychology professors or may not remember your own psychology classes. So with conditioning, what that means is our behavior has been shaped over time. And so for our students, we, we want most of us want there to be some kind of engagement. I've never really talked to any professor ever who says, no, what I really would like is for me to talk the entire time and just be stared at with blank faces. That's what I'm really hoping for. But sometimes I've had professors who have said, gosh, they're just, they're, in my case, I teach traditional age undergraduates. So people might say, oh, they're just too young or Some people might say, oh, they're just not interested in learning or they're too uncomfortable to ask questions or whatever. And so they've over time just decided it didn't work in the past, whatever it was they were trying. So we're going to talk about eight seconds that you can use that will really transform your teaching and will break the conditioning that some of us have have made for our students, break them of that that habit that they might have gotten into, and then also break it for ourselves to help us see the power of being able to ask questions and engage with students and actually have that dynamic working. So let's first talk out about how we have conditioned ourselves and our students not to engage in questions, that type of dialogue. So how this typically goes is that a professor might ask a question and then answer their own question. So you've probably seen this, not just professors, Dave, I'm sure you've seen this with lots of public speakers. And so someone would say, tell me what is the fourth P of marketing? Remember, the fourth P of marketing is price. So price is, so we, we, we ask a question, then we end up answering it ourselves because Clearly no one knew the answer, right? I would go even farther to say this is a human issue, more so even yeah. than a teaching issue, because we do tend to a lot of times ask questions we 
already think we know the answer to or or position it to what we want to hear as people. Mm-hmm. And we don't, and when people are, other people are talking, we're thinking about what we're going to say next versus really listening for understanding, which takes um, really, a, it takes effort and conscious practice to be able to get better at that, particularly when connecting with students in front of a classroom. And it can be so awkward. I remember what a big transition it was for me. I had my background in teaching was in the corporate world. And so I was accustomed to <laughs> the presenting in front of audience. I was in the franchise industry for a lot of my early career. And so I, I mean, I might have been presenting to a group as small as 20 and as large as 2000. And I was a hoot. <laughs> So I I would say things and people would laugh. You know, they'd laugh even if it wasn't funny. Just to be polite, they would laugh. And then to go into the climate of a typical, if there is such a thing, typical undergrad class, people don't laugh. Even if it's funny, sometimes they don't laugh. Or just sometimes they, if they don't find it funny, they're surely not going to laugh. But even if it's funny, sometimes that just, it just... There's sometimes a social awkwardness, particularly I found when I teach freshmen, they're especially early on in their freshman year, they're all just trying to figure out what this all is all about. So I was an entirely different audience. And so it can, we just know it can be awkward. It can be awfully awkward. And so we condition ourselves. I'm not going to ask that question again, because I asked it, I asked a question and everyone just looked at me and it was awkward for all of us, for me and for them. And I don't want to do that again. So I'm not going to ask questions or if I'm going to ask a question, I'm going to quickly answer it because that's, that's the way we're going to roll from here on out. And, and I think this is also challenging at uh, like the graduate level or in graduate programs where you have more, a lot of institutions have more of a cohort model where a group of people have been going through classes together, and it is the faculty member who changes over time. And some of those groups develop, well, they all develop their own dynamics. And I've um, come into cohorts where the dynamic has clearly been set of we are pretty quiet during a class. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's not an easy thing to overcome, especially when a cohort is a year or two in with each other. Um, you're inheriting the culture of that cohort as a faculty member. And so I found that to be a struggle on the on the opposite end, too, of now we have a norm that's been established in this group of how we're going to process information in a class and how we're going to dialogue or not. And if that norm is different than my teaching style, I have to adapt. And mm-hmm. I have to think of what am I going to do to meet them halfway, but also to challenge them to dialogue and interact in a way that I know will be helpful to them in taking the theoretical material in the classroom and be able to apply it practically in their work and in their research. I'm cracking up. I don't think I told you this, Dave, but speaking of cultures that cohorts can create, one of the things that the doctoral class I just finished, the way it was structured was there were some face-to-face experiences, and then there were also asynchronous, meaning at their own pace modules, they would go through different weeks. But then there was also live synchronous sessions online. And if you've done that, anyone listening that's done those synchronous live sessions, I mean, these people are educators. And so they're working all day, teaching all day or superintending all day or all, all of that. And then to come for almost two hours to an online session, 
it can be pretty low energy. So I had been reading an article about Dave and I are really into our Fitbits, the pedometers we use that track our steps and things. And so I had been reading an article just about how we were not designed to sit down. And so for them, we would in between each one of their presentations, when they would present to each other, we would do a quick stretch break. And you can see each other on video camera. I mean, they're on webcams, and I'm on a webcam. So in between every presenter, everyone would stand up and do their big stretch. And they really did say what a difference that made just bringing their energy level back up. And then we did it again when we came to our face to face session where we closed out the class a couple weeks ago. And it cracks me up because you're speaking and I'm thinking, I broke the cohort for the next professor is going to be what is going on? here? Why are these people standing up all the time in between? Because it just would be really kind of random if you didn't know that that was the case. Although actually, the woman who's teaching the class after me did go and sit in my half day. So she'll know. But in the future, other people are going to be thinking, what on earth just happened here? It's so funny how we can create these little subcultures and cohorts. And someone will say, well, there was that crazy woman we had as a professor back a while ago. <laughs> so at any rate, let's talk about what let's I want to look at the process. And then by the way, this is going to get back to eight seconds, right? So I want to look at the process. What has to happen before a student will answer a question in a class? What actually has to transpire? So first of all, I ask a question, right? Then the student has to process what's just been asked. In communication models, this is called encoding. No, sorry, this is called decoding. What I do is encode it and communicate it, and then the student has to decode it. We hope, by the way, they're decoding in somewhat of a similar fashion of what we had meant to ask, but there's lots of room for miscommunication there too. There always is. Communication is messy. So they are decoding the question. They're actually processing it in their brain. Then the student has to see if he or she can formulate an answer to the question. So actually figuring out what is the answer for themselves. That takes some time, right? Then the student has to formulate an answer in his or her head. How will they convey their answer? And of course, this can really, really depend on just how comfortable are they with themselves and with their answer and how they want to say it. There's so much thought that needs to go into that. And particularly for me, working with the 18 to 22 year olds, they're discovering their own identities and there's still some insecurity there. I mean, all of us at any age can have insecurity. By the way, this work, the same model works, doesn't matter the age of the students, but I, I'm just trying to give examples of different types of teaching you, you might be doing. Then the next thing is key. The student has to decide if it's safe to answer. Mm. Am I going to look foolish? And any age, we don't want to look foolish. We don't want to get the wrong answer. We don't, we don't want to embarrass ourselves. And then depending on what the cultural rules are in the classroom, they either have to raise their hand or just actually speak out their answer. So all of that takes more than instantaneous. Yes. <laughs> There's some good grammar. It takes more than instantaneous. But I think that that's the thing is that a lot of instructors faculty and otherwise aren't comfortable with silence. And so we get, we, this is all happening 
and takes a couple of seconds. And that's where we end up answering our own question because we hear silence Mm -hmm. and we go, hmm, guess no one knows. I'm not really comfortable with silence because I don't know what to do with that. So I'm going to answer my own question and move on in my lecture. And since I asked the question, I didn't have to decode it because I'm the one who encoded it in the first place before I even asked it. So I skipped that step as the person who asked it. I don't have to formulate an answer. I already know what either the answer or an answer would be to the question. I know what my viewpoint would be if it's an opinion question or so I I got that part covered. I don't have to formulate an answer because I already know again what my answer would be. And then I already know that I'm safe because I'm the one presenting. I have the power and the control in the room. I don't have to go through that process in my head. So it seems agonizingly long to me as the one asking the question. So I'll just answer it and go right on. And so we don't let give people the space to be able to go through that process a lot of the time and be able to respond in such a way that, you know, perhaps adds a lot of value to the, to the conversation, Mm -hmm. but we would skip over. And there's, there's, been really interesting research done on the you know the male female dynamic, especially in primary classrooms, of how much time diff- you know uh, teachers give to um, for people to respond to questions. And uh, I know a lot of the research has shown that uh, boys will tend to jump in faster mm-hmm. than girls, but girls will process things longer and sometimes give richer answers. So it's really it, it, and. I'm way oversimplifying a lot of the research, but that's what some of the things have shown. I don't yeah, know if that's true for the extrovert introvert dynamic that comes up too, where the introvert a lot of times is going to have something really great to say, but is especially going to need to process it longer internally before offering an answer, if they were even inclined to offer an answer. And think longer about is it safe to answer too. So those kinds of things all become dynamics that are are challenging as well. So introducing the eight second rule. The eight-second rule says we ask a question and then we start counting eight seconds in our heads. And I'm actually going to do eight seconds of silence on this recording so we can see just how long eight seconds is. But let me go over to my clock app so I can actually do this. Are you going to pose a question as well for us to respond to? Sure. Except... (laughs) Why don't you ask me if I'm going to pose a question and then I'll, I'll wait eight seconds to answer that. So you're going to say, are you going to ask a question? Ah. Mm-hmm. It's a play within a play. It's like Shakespearean. Wow. I wasn't prepared to ask a question. So just ask me if I'm going to ask a question. Are you going to ask a question? That was eight seconds. That's a long time. It is a long time. So if you're listening, you might be thinking, oh, that was just agonizing to listen to you and I know what you were doing. Here's the key though. You hardly ever are going to get to eight seconds. I have been using the eight second rule for longer than I care to admit. And it has worked in every instance except for one when students know about the eight second rule because I've taught it to them and they are messing with my head. (laughs) Because what's happening is, yes, we are leaving time, by the way. So we're leaving time for those processes to take place that I described earlier. 
But we're actually manipulating students too. And I'm going to be really forthright about that. You are manipulating them, students or whomever you're presenting in front of. People don't like that silence. They don't like the silence more than they don't like risking speaking in public. So you'll actually be able to manipulate them, say, oh, this is not comfortable, awkward. I'm going to answer the question. And it helps them free up that feeling of risking saying an answer that might be wrong or might embarrass them in some way. But you've started to condition them that you actually want an answer. And then you reward them for answering. And we will be talking in future shows more about types of questions to ask and how to approach that. But I wanted to start here with the eight seconds because it works even if you asked a bad question. <laughs> it really does work. And so, but, but the key is counting the eight seconds in your head and not answering your own question, not asking the question again in a different way. But, and, and maintaining the eye contact too, because that does a number too. It, by having eye contact with different students, you'll just see them, that'll be the most that they'll, they'll have that fearful look, oh, she's looking at me. As opposed to turning around and looking at a PowerPoint mm-hmm. or glancing at your computer or your notes or something like that. I would not advise staring at the same student the whole eight seconds, but to do maybe two seconds to one student, two seconds to another student. And, and not be afraid of that. By the way, if you wonder if you have stared at them for too long, human behavior is they'll actually look away when you've looked at them too long. So you don't have to really worry about that too much because it's kind of just a natural thing that happens. So the eight second rule, you ask a question and you wait the eight seconds and you will start to get a response from students and then you'll start to condition them that you really do want to engage and then you're not even gonna have to get even close to the eight seconds because they're going to start to learn behaviorally without you even being outward about what you're doing. You are teaching them, you are conditioning them to engage. I thought of one other thing that goes along with this, Bonnie, that I've used over the years and it's been helpful. I think I learned this as a Dale Carnegie instructor years ago, one of the things that I was taught is to, to the best that you can, to not allow someone to be alone in a negative. So if someone says something or contributes something in a classroom format and it is wrong, like if there's a, if there was a yes or no question or a black or blue or, you know, black or white question, um, and they end up being wrong or they give an answer that isn't correct for whatever reason, um, is to cushion that in some way of say something like, I could see how you could come to that conclusion, or that's a common that's a common perception about this. Or even if you've once believed that too, you know, that's actually something that I thought too at one point. So that way you even if someone gives you know gives some sort of contribution that isn't accurate or is false for whatever reason, you give them a space where they're comfortable saying, Yeah, I wasn't correct in my answer, but I also know that it's that's okay that I gave a incorrect answer. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you want to be engaging the kind of dialogue that, um, you know, there could be lots of different opinions too. But on things that there are factual right or wrongs about, I found that that's really helpful to even if someone does give a wrong answer, that they're comfortable again contributing in the future of giving an answer again because they haven't been shot down just because they gave an answer that wasn't right. And when you do that, you're not just helping that one student engage in the future, but you're teaching the entire class 
that you're going to be a trustworthy person for taking those risks. Because if they're the ones who are wrong the next time, they see how you've responded to another person who was wrong. And I think that is that is something that a lot of leaders, and I put faculty into this category too as leaders, they really do set the tone in the classroom. You jump on one student for a wrong answer or something that maybe didn't sound as intelligent as they wanted it to sound. And all of a sudden, you've taught the other 20 people who were watching that interaction, don't risk. Don't risk saying something that may not be perfectly thought through or may not be perfectly accurate. And then you'll end up killing dialogue in that class as long as it goes on. And we'll never know why, um, but that will be the kinds of that will be the kinds of things people see and remember. We would love to hear from you if you have tried the eight second rule or something like it, or if you test it out after listening, how it goes. The show notes are at teachinginhighered.com slash six. This is the time in the show when we share our ed tech finds. And I've actually been thinking about perhaps broadening this part of the show. I love talking about educational technology tools but I also love just great finds. And today's tool, you'd have to really make a stretch that it's actually related to education other than that we will often bring one of these with us when we teach. It's kind of got a technology component to it as well. Yes, so Dave was so kind and instead of bringing me flowers, which I do like when he brings me flowers, but even better than flowers for me are some of the other gifts that he gets. So he got me a gift to celebrate the launch of this podcast. He's been nudging me for some time to launch it. An amazing gift that so many people out there are clamoring for yes. and thinking about at every Valentine's Just Day Just wishing they had one. Wishing. It's a water bottle. It's a water bottle. And it's a water bottle that's put out by a company called Evernote, which we've talked about a couple times on the show. And we do plan on, I mean, I use it so much as a part of my teaching and my personal knowledge management system called Evernote. It's a cloud-based notebook system, but they're really broadening what they have to offer. And it includes different types of office products, including these really neat looking sticky note holders. Don't get me started. Some really neat bags, a wallet and including a water bottle. So when I opened the gift from Dave, my first thought was a water bottle. We have lots of those, but this one's beautiful. It is beautifully designed. Oh, it's gorgeous. The Evernote green. It's really cool. It's stunningly beautiful. But the technology inside makes it like a thermos, but without carrying the weight of a thermos. So it'll keep cold beverages cold for up to 24 hours and hot beverages hot for up to 12. I've not tried it with hot beverages yet because it's really hot these days. (laughs) But with cold beverages, I've tried it out and it is unbelievable how long it keeps them cold. I'll put a couple things of ice in there, a little bit of ice and and water. And it's the whole entire day, just freezing cold, just like the moment I put it in there. It's amazing. In fact, it's probably even colder because the ice gets it really, really nice and cold. And, And it sounds so simple, but the other water bottles I have don't do anywhere near that good of a job of keeping beverages cool. And But then it's so light too. It's amazing. It is on the pricier end. So I'll put a link to the Evernote water bottle in the show notes, but you probably only want to click that link if you really like cold water and you really like, it's going to be worth it to you because it's on the pricier end of water bottles. But it's the kind of gift you want to give someone. It's the gift that at first seems kind of unassuming, but then as they get to know it better, like, wow, this is an amazing gift. 
Yes. I'll and be if, thinking of you every time I drink from it in the fall when we go back to teaching. Hey, if you're going to get your best friend a water bottle, you're going to get her the best one out there. Nothing but the best. So Dave, your ed tech find is also not kind of quite an ed tech find, but an unfind. Yeah, I think uh, I'm reading this book right now called Essentialism, and the author really challenges people to think about not only what it is you need in your life and work, but also what are things that you don't need. Mm. And at the same time, I've been thinking and a lot about just how I use technology and how I'm present, especially around our kids and even other people too, but especially with our kids and what kind of message I send. And while I'm very good overall of not being one of those parents that's on the phone all the time with the kids... There are definitely times where there's downtime, especially with our toddler, he's doing something. And I will, because we're busy, I'll say, oh, I've got five minutes here where I can check out email and see what's going on and see what's happening. And I'll pull out the phone out of my pocket and I'll look at email. And and then that those three or four minutes are gone and I'm back with Luke or, or doing whatever. But just by glancing at what's going on, I am getting my mind into something that's going on in email or a work-related thing or a student-related thing that then I'm thinking about even after I've put the phone away. And so I'm physically there with him, but mentally I've already, now I'm starting to think about something I saw in email or something urgent that's come up. And the reality is, is I'm not in the kind, I don't do the kind of work, either our consulting or training business or anything like that, where it's exceptionally rare that anything of urgency comes over email. And even when it does, someone would call or, or something like that. And so I really started thinking about it last week. Like, what real benefit is there to having email in my pocket? Because I don't ever respond. So it's not like I'm going to do anything with the email I'm seeing. It's just more of that kind of that constant wanting to be stimulated by what's going on in the world. But the reality is, is I don't I don't respond. I don't do anything with that information other than think about it in a place that I can't do anything with that in, with that knowledge. And so I turned off email on my iPhone mm. about four days ago, and I just went all the accounts and I just said off, 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 off. I can turn them back on if I if I really needed to. Um, actually, we were somewhere this weekend that I I did need access to email. I needed to get access to something, so I turned it on briefly, um, just to send something, and. I have found that it has been such a freeing experience. I find mentally I'm so much more focused, so much more present just with the kids this past few days. And again, I'm not a crazy person on 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 the iPhone with email, but I realizing how much I did look at it now and how much mentally that would take me away from where I was. And so I'll report back on that. Right now, it's just a one-week experiment. My one uh, class I'm teaching right now, we all made some commitments on things we were going to do different in our communication this week, and this was my commitment. Mm. So I will report back on what happens with that. But for now, I'm really happy to not be uh, tied to email on my phone and to sit down when I'm at the computer and using the time when I can actually respond to it. That's so great. What a wonderful gift you're giving to yourself and to our family and your students modeling that for them. Yeah, we'll see what happens with it. We would love to hear from you about any ed tech finds or unfinds that you want to share with us at teachinginhighered.com slash six. That's where you'll find the show notes and where you can comment. And speaking of gifts, you could get a gift right now. You right could. At this minute. At you this could second. Get, at this second, you could go onto email. <laughs> uh, Not if you're actually, driving. No, don't go on there. Uh, go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. 
You will get on the weekly updates for this podcast, all the show notes and articles, but you'll also get Bonnie's guide to 19 different essential ed tech tools, right? Yes. And it's a great guide. It goes over a lot of things we talked about on this show, but a whole bunch of other stuff too. So check it out, teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you soon.